Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 175 of the Speaking Club podcast. Today, I want to open the show with a Native American proverb. We do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hi there, I hope you're well and loving life wherever you are. Good to have you here again. Or if it's your first time catching the show, then welcome, smashing to have your company. If you are a fan of the show, maybe something I've shared or you've heard from a guest has helped you on your speaking and storytelling journey, then I'd love to ask if you would do me a quick favour and leave a rating or review for The Speaking Club. I promise it's very simple. Just go to ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. That's ratethispodcast.com slash TSC and it'll just take you a couple of minutes. Okay, so turning to today's guest. Well, funnily enough, I found Graham Hill through his TED Talk on Small Living. Uh, you see, I have a newsletter which is called the Sparketing Weekly. That's speaking and marketing. And I send it to the people on my list and it's full of tools, tips and recommendations. And one part of it, I spend looking at a talk and I give them the link to the talk and analysing that, giving some feedback and coaching points so that they can use that as a learning tool for their own speaking. So I was analysing Graham's talk and I was so impressed with it and his message that I reached out to get him on the show. And here we are. Now, Graham Hill has always been a pioneer. Early on, he created and sold one of the first internet companies, which gave him the opportunity to shift his focus. And since then, he's created more companies, but with a different focus on influencing the narrative around sustainability, some of which have been featured by the New York Times, Dwell Discovery Channel and The Minimalist Documentary. If you haven't checked that one out, go and have a look at that. I think it's on Amazon, but it may be Netflix. I don't know. Either one of those, The Minimalist, go and have a look. Anyway, today he is a leading figure at the intersection of entrepreneurialism, innovation and sustainability. He's one of Fast Company's 100 most creative people in business and he's sought after for his ability to clearly communicate how we can all create a simpler, wealthier, greener and happier planet. He's presented at many prestigious conferences, including two main stage TED Talks. And as I said, one of those influenced me, but they've all reached over 10 million people. And on this show, Graham is going to be sharing with you how speaking has helped him become a thought leader in the environmental space and about his latest venture, which has been 20 years in the making. It's called The Carbonauts, and it's the culmination of Graham's environmental career and the start of a movement that could tip the balance in nature's favour so that our planet and future generations are much safer. So, let's hear from Graham 
right now. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Graham Hill. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm very excited, as I always say I'm excited about my guests, and I genuinely mean it. Um, I've seen your TED Talks, I know what you're about, and I think the audience is going to really love the message. So let's start off saying what happened, because I'm curious about this, what actually happened and when to start you on the mission that you're on today? Well, I guess I came by it naturally. I have hippie parents, although they are, they argue that if they had jobs and so that disqualifies them from being hippies, but that's another topic. Um, yeah, I had hippie parents that, that are always really energy focused and I grew up in the country and there's a lot of health food and heating with wood, huge gardens, cows, horses, geese, chickens, dogs, cats, raccoons, lots of animal life around and hiking and just outdoors. And so, uh, yeah, I think largely my family really inspired me um, this way. And then I probably later on in, in university and in architecture school, uh, somehow came across a book called The Diet for a New America, which is all about uh, vegetarianism and ended up being a vegetarian for five years back then. Um, so those were probably the, the formative uh, bits that got me to into this topic area. And then I built uh, one of the early internet companies in 95 with my cousin Tish Hill in Seattle, and I had some success there. We grew it to 60 people and sold it. And uh, so that gave me a little bit more of an opportunity to be choosy about what I wanted to do with my life. And so that's when I really um, luckily sort of got back into environmentalism and, and really the first project that uh, was successful in any case was uh, treehugger.com. And, and that's really sort of my point of uh, no return back in 2004. Cool. So how did you go from outdoorsy type um, clearly there's affinity with with you know the outdoors and nature and stuff and architecture into an internet business what how did that happen I I think I always wanted to be an inventor is the reality I'm not quite sure why but uh, back in in the 70s I guess in the 80s industrial design just wasn't an, as much of a known sort of thing back then and so I just, I ended up in architecture and only in architecture school did I realize um, uh, actually via dating a woman named Allison Phillips from industrial design school that there was even such a thing as industrial design. Uh, so uh, I ended up after I graduated in architecture, really, I was very attracted to industrial design. So I ended up uh, going to study that after. And I did a couple of years of that at Emily Carr in Vancouver and really enjoyed it. Uh, and it was just a really advanced uh, school in terms of the internet uh, in that we had Pine, uh, like text-based email and, uh, and a graphical web terminal. It was called then, which was basically the, a computer with the, with the web with graphics on it in the library. And I was doing multimedia CD-ROM kind of stuff, 3D modeling. And I just, I was very attracted to the idea that a small team could create something that could be a sort of worldwide phenomenon, just in general with the CD-ROM kind of stuff. And the internet was that 
you know, even more so. And so I was immediately very attracted to the internet. And so, yeah, I just sort of fell in love with the internet and then um, ended up moving to Seattle because my cousin Tishil was there and, and it sort of went from there. So, yeah, so I sort of, there wasn't any environmental anything there. It just was attracted and frankly attracted to the sort of change the world aspects of the internet. I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And so that's, so that distracted me for five years or so, but, but that's okay. It also gave me the capability to really be choosy about what I wanted to do. So was it, was it all around industrial design, the agency that you, or was it more related to internet and messaging or? Yeah, that's a good question as well. I mean, I, I really, at that point, I'd done seven years of design school and, and of various types. And so I, I tend to feel like I'm a designer of all kinds of things. And, and so I definitely brought that to it. And, you know, at that point, it was, it was you know, industrial design is very applicable. Um, you're, you're designing products. And we, we, in fact, started one of the early information architecture groups is what we called it. So really wow. trying to apply design to the internet because it was sort of new. And, and uh, uh, my friends, Kelly and Karen, ended up uh, starting their own company, which is now like over like, 20 years old at this point. So Cool. Yeah. So you were pretty much a pioneer in that space. Well, yeah, very much so. Yeah, we were we were literally running around pitching people on building websites, uh, trying to like paper brochures and saying, "Hey, uh, this is you know this is why you should be on the World Wide Web." Like it was literally a time when people were confusing their email addresses and their website addresses. Like ninety five was early, 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 early. Yeah, so, yeah very, very much on cutting cutting edge of that. And so tell me about Tree Hugger. So, so basically you sold that business, yeah. which gave you more freedom to actually pursue the mission that maybe is in your heart. Yep. Um, so what happened next? So what was treehugger.com? I'm trying to just to sort of get people along your journey. So what was that all about? Yeah. Uh, so at that point I was in New York City and uh, I, I happened upon a group called the Natural Step, an environmental group ended up really getting into it. We started an offshoot. I had a cool loft that we would meet at and we put together the interdependent film festival and just were, you know, focused on various environmental matters. And, and I got sort of frustrated. Uh, I, 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 we were all like, there was lots of talk. I mean, it's very funny because I've definitely kept the same feel feeling. There was a lot of talk, but we weren't, no one was really doing much. And so and I was very frustrated with the state of environmental media. At that point, it, it, it was not design forward. It was very hippie if it existed at all. Practically didn't have pictures, uh, so no images. And it was just an anti-business, stop this, stop that, inspired by fear. And I saw what, what, what I continue to believe is a very exciting green future that like really positive and pro-business and pro-city and cool and exciting and, and inspiring. And, and, and there was literally nothing out there. So Treehugger was really innovative at the time. We, it's a tongue-in-cheek name, sort of making, in a way, making fun of the, of the, of the hippies, even though we love the hippies. 
Um, and yeah, it was a modern architecture, product design, fashion, environmental news. We just covered everything. And the idea was we wanted to mainstream green. So it just, it was not mainstream at that point. And so we had a very different approach. We were very aggressive. It was one of the early blogs. So we had that going for us, which was great. We pushed really hard. And so very quickly, we were the biggest green site on the web and held on to that for a couple of years, probably until the big guys all got on board. And uh, yeah, Triagra was great. So it was, it was about this exciting green future and really helping people see what I could see in my head, bring it, bring it together in one place. We had an amazing team, uh, including Meg O'Neill, who's now working with me on the Carbonauts. And it was inspired by hope. It was modern. It was, you can wear a collared shirt and live in the city and still call yourself an environmentalist. And so it, it was terrific. And, and it's still going strong. Uh, Lloyd Alter, who I hired back then, is still at it, which is great. <laughs> and my friend Neil Vogel uh, uh, runs it as part of, ended up being part of Discovery and then later part of Dot Dash, which is part of IAC. And they're still doing terrific work. And they've, uh, Trigger served b literally billions of pages and is still going strong. And I'm, I'm proud of it. And they're still doing terrific work. So clearly you're, you're, you know, you're a visionary. I think that's, that's coming across loud and clear and it's, and it's trying to enable people to catch up or get on the same page. So from, from Treehugger, what happened next? Because I mean, where where were you at this point? So, you, you how long were you there for, and when did you sell that, and what happened next? So that was uh, 04 to 07. I sold it to Discovery Channel. Discovery. Yeah. Uh, worked for them. They were terrific. Love that company. Worked for them for a couple of years. Uh, they were great. Did a lot of press. Did a bunch of TV. Uh, and. Um, I guess it was at that point that I did weekday vegetarianism, my, one of my TED Talks, which was uh, great, still going strong. Um, and, but I'm, I'm, not a, I'm an entrepreneur, not a corporate guy. So you know, they were great to work for, but after a couple of years, it was time to do something new. And so I ended up working on a project called Life Edited, which is sort of going back to my architecture, product design and construction uh, experience back in the day. And the idea was simply that, that if you apply design technology and some minor behavior change that you can, we can create very compelling smaller lives uh, as evidenced by you in your camper <laughs> recording this. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely yeah. subscribe. We've downsized and downsized and downsized because I mean, I don't want to stop you, but just for me, I realize like at certain point in my life, it's like when I'm on my deathbed, it's not going to be what I own. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about is what I haven't done. And, yeah. you know, and so, so I've changed a lot in my life and, you know, I'm vegan now and, you know, I'm bought into this, which is why I love your message. So that's cool. So did that, cause that Ted talk was, was brilliant. Um, and Thanks. I love what you did in that space. So I think, could you just like share yeah. the, how sure. small so, the space was and what you did? Yeah, so Life Edited was essentially a, a, a big proponent of small living. And the idea that if we do smart design and technology, we create just smaller, better spaces that are just really efficient and 
every the smaller you make something the easier it is for it to be green it's just less materials it, it holds less stuff it's easier to heat and cool and light and clean etc and so uh, we did a bunch of terrific projects including two apartments in new york that i lived in with sort of trans transforming so one of them was 420 square feet one of them was 350 the second one so moving walls and uh, Murphy beds that fold out of the wall over a couch kind of thing and hidden tables that extend and stacking chairs and and just yeah just really smart transforming design so you can do more with less and uh, so I did a couple of those and I did a I, everyone always would say what about what about family you can't do that with a family and so then I did one in in Maui we did one um called Life Edited Maui, and that is a thousand square feet, four bedroom, two and a half bath, and, and a bunch of the rooms transform as well. And so basically did something for a family and then layered on uh, the off-grid aspect. And so that one is uh, full solar, not, not grid connected at all, water catchment, uh, composting toilets and electric cars and that sort of stuff, and it's fantastic. Um, that's in that's in Maui, so that was a life edit, and so the life edit was was really fun, and I think we we helped popularize small living and added to that party. Um, but ultimately, I realized that I didn't really want to be an architect, and I didn't really want to be a developer, and so um, I uh, a couple a couple years ago decided to to move on from that back burner that. Excellent. And I'm going to talk to you, I'm going to come back to talk about the Carbonauts, which is your current uh, baby. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I, you know, I'm going to come on to that, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you is that, do you think that the pandemic has had an effect on the way we think about the planet and our relationship with it? I think that it, there will be a positive ramifications from the pandemic overall. Uh, I tend to be perhaps I'm very positive, but also a little bit jaded. I, I, I think that humans go, go very, we, we have very short memories. And so we very quickly go back to the norm of whatever it was before. So I don't, I, I think we will have moved some things, but a lot of the stuff will revert. But I think that, that the sil big silver lining with COVID is that we were able to see that if we put, if we if we do ultimately feel threatened, and and we can really get our act together. So we spent trillions of dollars, we changed behaviors, we built new social norms, and that, those are big things. And so, if we can, and it seems like this is starting to really happen, if we can get serious about climate change and really, it's tough because it's such a long-term, somewhat invisible kind of thing. But if we can get serious about it, then we can make it happen. We can spend the money, we can change the policies, we can change the behaviors, we can change the social norms, we can make this happen. And so uh, I think that's a big silver lining, just, just knowing, hey, when, when push comes to shove, a lot can happen. We just sort of proved it. And I, I wouldn't have, I feel like personally, I wouldn't have known that before. Like it was mm -hmm. good to see. So it was a good sort of test run for us. And 
hopefully uh, we clue into the, the true emergency that climate change is and, and do the same because there's this incredible green world just around the corner with so many advantages for us on, on uh, financial and health and just um, you know, allowing our species to survive and, and all the other species, frankly. So uh, yeah, so I think the pandemic overall was good. It was certainly good on people probably realizing, wow, well, that's not so bad if I don't fly around all the time. Um, and, and, and probably more importantly, just has really helped people see that they can work from home and, and companies are now understanding, wow, it's a really, we can actually get a lot of stuff done. We can make for smaller offices. It can make for less commuting, which is you know, dangerous, uh, a disaster in terms of the environment, not good for your overall lifestyle, et cetera. So I think we really, people have, have we've, we've woken up to telecommuting and, and the, the advantages to it. And I think that's terrific. I've been doing it literally since 2000. So it's a, it's a sort of funny thing for me. I've basically you know, been doing it for a very long time. But um, I think it's a, that, that's a big move. And I, I think we will still go back to offices. But I, I do think something fundamentally has shifted. And we'll see a lot more. And I think that's great for the planet. And I think it's great for people's pocketbooks, uh, for companies' productivity, and... And for people's happiness, I think uh, being able to work at home some of the time or all the time is great for most people. It's really, I think this is one of the big things for me is that it exploded some fallacies, some myths about this whole thing. I mean, my cor- in my corporate life, I was a HR director and we, you know, companies were always, we cannot have people working from home. We cannot have, it will affect the bottom line. It's just a shame that it had to be, for businesses agenda, you know, to, to keep things running that they yeah. saw the benefits rather <laughs> than all of the other side of the coin. So it is, you know, so it, it's it, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, but it's a shame that we have to get to that point before we can sort of explode some of these myths, but it is, I think it's going to be a brilliant thing. Now, yes. one of the biggest things that people can feel in relation to climate change. And, you know, I felt this and I guess a lot of people do, is helpless because you know you you think well how can my contribution matter when it's like a drop in the ocean when the, the negative effects of big business and manufacturing and so on uh, uh you know are still going to be happening what would you say about that to people can they make a difference and i guess is that a segue then into what you're doing today yeah uh yeah, I think people can can make a difference. I mean, ultimately, this is all of us together having the impact, right? And so I think they say, I think, which I think is great, they say if you point a finger at someone, something, some corporation in this example, uh, three are pointing back at you. And I think that's relevant. I, I think that... Um, I read something this morning from uh, Axios, a great environmental newsletter. And it's uh, an article talking about how five companies are responsible for a quarter of all plastics. And so that there's a great example, like, wow, that's amazing. That's, that's, uh, that's powerful. So if we could only get those companies, like you end up going there. But the reality is that like, 
who's buying the plastic? Right? And, yeah. You know, politicians get in because someone votes them in. So uh, I think we are, I think as humans, we like to blame, we like to point fingers. And we absolutely need systemic change. And we absolutely do need to point fingers at companies and try to get them to change. But I think we have some personal responsibility and we have a part part in this. And so, you know, people that are like angry at, at loggers or that kind of stuff, it's like, yeah, and do you live in a wood house? <laughs> And if you do, is that all sustainably forested wood or not? Like, I just think we're, we can be really sort of intellectually dishonest. And so, um, so uh, my friend Saul Griffith is a uh, really smart guy, and, and I, I've always loved his approach to environmentalism in general. And he talks about how in, in environmentalism, it's really it's a yes and situation, sort of like improv. Well, yeah. um, and there, there's so much to do. We have to go so far that this is, we don't want to be just arguing, quibbling about sort of, should we do this approach or that approach? Like we're, we're going to need all of the approaches, you know, but you know, some of them we won't, of course, but in general, it's a, it's a yes. And, and so it's trying to make it is it systemic change or is it personal responsibility it's like that's not the question it's both and so uh so i think both are very important i also think that if you take personal responsibility and work on your own personal footprint and that's what we help with at the carbonots that once you've made some of those actions, taken some of those actions, made some of those moves, that then you come from a different place. You come from a place of integrity, of familiarity, probably of knowledge and enthusiasm. And so at that point, when you're pointing the finger, it's just, a, it can, it'll have a different tenor. And I think you're way more powerful uh, when you do that and probably more passionate as well. And, and then you're also more intellectually honest. And uh, so we absolutely, um, we can get out of this by the way too, just your, your initial question about sort of helplessness. Like, um, we could do this tomorrow. This is all just our shared myths, I think. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari talks about this, and I think it's just brilliant. It's like, this is all just how we imagine things to be. Um, we can live in a low footprint way tomorrow if we want to. We just have to make that decision. And so we're absolutely not helpless. And I think we, we saw what we can do in COVID. And so this is similar. We have, we have, most of the technology, most of the knowledge we need to get there, we just need the will to do this and, and, and it can happen. And so uh, we want to take personal responsibility and lower our own personal footprints. And we want to point fingers at politicians, at governments, at corporations, at specific people. Um, we want to do that. We want to pressure, we need to build the social norms that we need uh, to live in this new manner. And by the way, it's a great new way to live. And uh, it, it's just, it's gonna be amazing.
uh, electrification of everything is going to make our air nice. Uh, there's great healthy food, like it's going to help our health. It's like, and and there are jobs in here, and uh, yeah, there's uh, we can figure this out. There's a there's a often a perception that this is about sacrifice, but. You know, there are so many, you're just starting to point them out and, and, and perhaps you can add more to it, but certainly my own experience is that when you, you know, take on board some of these things and follow them, there's are so many personal benefits. You yes. know, you know li- lifestyle, you have more space, more freedom. It, it, there are a lot of benefits. So it doesn't have to be a sacrifice where you lose things. You can it actually really... gain. And it's about shifting that rhetoric and perspective of people. I agree. I think we're, we're, we're very fortunate in that already most of the solutions are, are really compelling, better solutions than, than, than the replacing. So we're very lucky. But say a few of them require a little bit of sacrifice. We're literally talking about the survival of our species. I mean, it, this is not a question like, all of our institutions agree with this. The vast, vast majority of the scientific community, like this could not be clearer. So yeah, imagine, imagine if we had to sacrifice a, a, a little bit so that our species might survive. Okay, I think we can do that. Um, but luckily so much of this at this point, and it will only get easier, uh, is amazing. So if they want to talk about carbonots, the, the, yeah. of the, what we call the big five, um, which really, I think we're going to call the big six pretty soon, but the big five, um, most of them are very compelling. So the big five are renewable energy, uh, plant rich diet, reducing food waste, uh, and composting. Those are all under food, uh, Electric driving, electric vehicles, uh, flying, reducing and optimizing offsets, and the, the sixth would be sharing, just telling people about it. So let's just go through those in terms of sort of compelling solutions. So renewable energy. At this point, you, most people in uh, Western societies, I would say, can sign up for renewable energy from their utility within about 10 minutes and it will cost them something. And so for some people, this is um, more of a challenge. I would also note that uh, there's a very clear correlation between the size of your footprint and how much money that you make. And so if you don't make a lot of money, you literally, in my opinion, have less responsibility uh, in this respect. If you do have money, then it's not a big deal to buy renewable energy. That's if you buy from a utility. If you don't buy it from a utility and you perhaps own a house, uh, that is solar panels on your rooftop tend to pay back in five or 10 years, depending on where you are. They're a terrific investment. And so that is very compelling. Um, community solar, uh, I'm not sure the situation with that in Europe. I think it's actually even better than in the US, but. Community solar, you can sign up for that as even a renter, and that will typically save you money. So, you know, renewable energy, some great solutions. And how are they going to affect you? I mean, at worst case, they may cost you a little bit, but you've got all the same electricity. It's all good. Uh, Food, 
a plant-rich diet, the sort of the less meat that you eat, the healthier in general you're going to be. Do you not get to, perhaps you're not eating as much of your favorite hamburger? Yeah, that might be a sacrifice for you. Uh, it also, on the other, other, the flip of that, it might actually be really good for you and you might live longer and healthier. So there's some great stuff in food. Reducing food waste in the US, uh, I imagine somewhat similar in the Europe, except probably less because you tend to buy more often and have smaller fridges, but the average American wastes $150 a month on food waste. And so wow. focusing on food waste is uh, a, a terrific solution because it could literally save you thousands uh, of dollars a year if you did it uh, fully. So there's some advantage there. Composting, pretty easy. Um, you know, might cost you a little bit for a setup. Flying, uh, I'm going through the big five in terms of you know compelling solutions. Mm -hmm. Flying, uh, we help people uh, reduce their flying and then optimize whatever flights they take. So if you reduce your flying, you are uh, certainly saving hundreds of dollars uh, right there on any flight. Um, and then uh, finally, offsets, compelling solution costs some money. Um, so there's a, a quote unquote, a sacrifice there on the plus side, uh, you're doing a great thing for humanity and you may sleep a little better, a bit better at night. So, um, yeah, so there's some great solutions and, uh, those are the big five that we focus on. So, um, to probably to segue into the carbonots, um, the idea behind the carbonots is that if we can get a few percent of the population to be living compelling low footprint lives, uh, it's at that point that government, politicians, corporations are going to really notice. And it's that point that we'll get the policy, the investment and the products and services that we need for this whole thing to flip such that the other 95% of the population can start living uh, compelling low footprint lifestyles and in an easier manner. So that's our, our, what we're trying to do. And that number three and a half percent is based up, uh, off of a woman named Erica Chenoweth from Harvard. And uh, it's not the perfect uh, reference, but uh, we think it's, it's um, it works. She said hundred social movements of the last century and concluded that if three and a half percent of the population rise up and protest regularly, then that's when a government will topple. And we are not radicals trying to topple the government. I don't think we have time for that, and even if we did. Um, but I, I, we do believe that it is actually a small number. Um, once, once you get that, even a few percent of the population living in a different way, people really notice. And we start to build the social norms, and that's what will flip. And so that's the role of the carbonots. Tree hugger was largely about awareness uh, and definitely showing people stuff that they could do. Uh, the Carbonauts is all about action. We have tremendous levels of awareness, way higher than when I started Tree Hugger in 2004. Like most people are concerned about climate change and, and, and at least say that they want to do something. And so the Carbonauts is about moving from awareness to action. And that, that we view as our main challenge. And we're trying to build uh, a community of, uh, in the US, 12 million people that are, that's three and a half percent of the population. 
uh, they're living in this new way so the whole thing can flip and we can ride off into the sunshine or the sunset. I love it. I love yeah. it. And so, and so I love the way you're doing this as well. So it's actually a course that is yes. held over a number of weeks. Um, yeah. And there's a, a sort of, it's a live course. And you also have a sliding scale so that it is completely affordable for, for even those on, on the sort of lowest uh, income, which is great as well. And, so, yeah. and there's also measurables and stuff. So it is, I saw that it's really all about action. And how many people have you had through the program already? We've had a few hundred so far and it's starting to build. We've been mostly less focused on marketing and more just focused on getting the product right. And the product's pretty great. People really like it. We, we, uh, uh, we run surveys after every class. So we're really on top of what people think. And we get in, it's a five-week course, five uh, one-hour classes online, live on Zoom. So one a week for five weeks, so basically in a month. Uh, and we lead people through the big five uh, that we just discussed, renewable energy, food, electric vehicles, flying and offsets. And uh, we have the run of carbon footprint calculator at the beginning. And then we have leaderboard, uh, leader, live leaderboards throughout and sort of a point system. So we keep people really focused on taking action. And then we have them run into the calculator, carbon calculator at the end. Uh, and then also project forward six months uh, to allow for some of the things that take a bit longer to do. And we are getting 20, 30, 40% reductions in that time frame. So it's, it's got great results and people like it. Yeah, so it's working, uh, it's working really well. And uh, we are trying to get the word out. And, and yeah, we, have a, we, uh, we want the sliding scale format and, and I also say, listen, if you can't afford it, we don't want to let finances get in the way. Just email me and we'll, we'll let you email us and we'll let you do it for free. But yeah, we have a sliding scale for people and um, we're, just, um, we're just trying to build it. So we actually have uh, in early July, uh, July 6th, 7th, 8th, I believe, course is starting and we would love to have any of your listeners join us. Cool. And we will put a link in the show notes to that so that people can come and find out more. And, um, I, I think if I can, I will actually do it myself. So I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to do more. So, um, I'll, I'll get signed up for, for that one. So, um, Great. if there's, if there's space, who knows, it might be, it yeah. might be already full was get, get on out. it quick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get on it quick. <laughs> so how big are the groups actually, uh, Graham? So we, Matt, we, we try to keep them at a max of around 20. Cool. Um, a, a big part of it is is the accountability, the live aspect. And so we definitely do a bunch of speaking and, and we present stuff and show slides and pictures and graphs. And uh, But we have a lot of interaction. And uh, so we find around 20, 25, it's probably the max amount. And so we're, we're uh, yeah, ideally in the 10 to 25 kind of range. Cool. And uh yeah, it's at thecarbonauts.com is where you sign up. Brilliant. I will, as I say, I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, this is the speaking club. So I'm really interested in, in finding out from you what part you believe speaking has played in enabling you to become a thought leader in this area, to see your vision come to life. I think every entrepreneur is a salesperson of sorts. 
So speaking is a, is a big part of that, being able to tell a good story, being able to inspire staff, uh, clients, the public. So speaking is, is actually really important. I sort of fell into it strangely. And uh, it's, it's, it's great for those of you who find it scary. A lot of people are really scared of public speaking. I just would say that it took me a little time, but um, certainly I can remember in the late 90s with my uh, company in Seattle, just, just having to stand up and say a few thank yous. We won a Washington Software Award, something like that, Software of the Year Award, can't remember. Um, and I just being terrified. And cut to now, or actually probably even 10 years ago now, realizing and, and heading home on the subway from an interview at uh, one of the media organizations in, uh, in New York. I'm forgetting which one, but anyway, I was on live TV with four people peppering me with questions. And so in the, on the journey home, I realized, wow, I wasn't even nervous. And I, I was definitely a little nervous speaking at TED, but in general, I'm actually not nervous. And so you just, you, you put in the time and you do it enough and you just end up getting good at it. And, and it's not so scary and it's, it's really valuable. And if you are, if you have ideas, uh, it is a definitely a war of ideas out there. And so if you have ideas that you want to get out into the world, then you need to be able to learn to speak about it. And so I've hopefully been getting better and better over the years and, it's just, it's so rewarding. My couple of TED Talks have gotten over 10 million views. And, and you know, one of the most rewarding things ever is when I hear from people, uh, and I hear from both talks, one's on small living and one's on weekday vegetarianism. I just hear from these people that reach out and say, hey, you changed my life. I, I'm, I'm living small. I've downsized. I've done this. Or I had never thought about weekday vegetarianism and now I'm doing it. And I really, I, I appreciate it. And that, that's, um, that's tr tremendously rewarding. So I, I think you can be a leader and you can have a startup and not be a terrific public speaker, but I think you're missing out on a big opportunity. And uh, I think you, there's a lot, there's a lot to learn uh, by becoming good at, at public speaking and, I, lo I love it. I think it's a very interesting, interesting area. And I think part of it is just realizing that you, when you're speaking, people are giving you the gift of time and there's nothing more precious than time. And so you have a real responsibility to try to make their time worthwhile. And I feel I'm not very new agey, but I sort of feel like you're channeling something and uh, you know, try to make it worth their while and try to channel something good. And, and there's a real partnership with, with you and your listeners and it can be a very beautiful thing. And uh, I think evidence of that is just that certain, certain groups that I've spoken with have had me give different levels of quality of, of my talks. And so like one that was memorable for me was uh, um, there's a there's a lovely guy named Tony Shea, who unfortunately, rest in peace, died um, not that long ago. And I spoke to Zappos at their all staff and uh, he just created such a great culture there that it just was so much fun. And I could just feel it in the room and it just made the whole thing 
so inspiring. I gave my one of my better talks there. Um, so yeah, so I, lo- well, I love speaking. It's really interesting because I find certainly working with the people that I work with is once they shift from making the talk about them to seeing them as the vehicle for their message, yes. that's when the nerves fall away. When you yeah. are focused on 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 being, and you mentioned the word channel there, when you yeah. become that channel and you're mo- more focused on landing it with your audience so that you can make a difference, that's that's when it when it becomes less about you and more about yes. you know, that thing. So, yeah. Absolutely right. And that's, uh, yeah, I'd some, at some point clued into it and, and am revisiting it right now like a, with, with the carbonauts like we really we, we try to constantly remind ourselves we're not doing a great job yet in terms of our we sort of in terms of social media newsletters and that but yeah but we keep saying to ourselves make it about them make it about them make it about them absolutely that, that's really who's who it's about absolutely cool okay listen thank you so much for sharing about it and i think you know that that's just to sort of nail that point home as well it when you know, it, it is about you being a vehicle for your message, but also, you know, we are human beings. We're selfish creatures at heart. So creating that burning platform, you know, that reason for people to act, you know, that shows them that it's good for them as well as, you know, altruistically good is yeah. is, re- is really worth doing as well when you're, when you're putting a talk together. Um, mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, good. Right. I have some uh standard questions that i ask all my guests um the first of which is i think we've already covered it is what is speaking done for you and i think i think you've pretty much said that it's enabled you to get your message out there but is there anything else you'd want to add to that i would say it opens doors it opens doors i mean having being able having been able to deliver a couple talks on the ted main stage just it just uh, it gives you a checks a box for people, makes you worth it, it, it makes you worth listening to, and so I think that opens doors and gives you credibility. And in in a world with a lot of different people in it, um, you want to sort of cut through the chaff some somehow, and so I think it's helpful. And so you know at this point with the carbonots, it's like. I'm I'm actually leading the courses, and so the fact that that I have this background, I think helps helps make it attractive. Helps, make it, yeah. It's um, I become someone more worth list, listening to. Cool, cool. Thank you for that. And is there a talk that you've done that you thought, oh my god, that was a nightmare? I want to get rid of that one from my memory. Have you had a bad gig, uh, but then got back on the horse afterwards. Have I had a bad? I mean, the quality is certainly <laughs> all over the map, I would say. But uh, yeah, generally, I've never. Yeah, I mean, I think that also perhaps a making it all about them also probably makes that easier because it's not about you, and you get less focused on you, and 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 more about hey, how do I? How can I be helpful to this audience? Um, so I've never frozen or had any of those things happen that's that's very good okay so next question uh what's the book that you've read that's had most impact on your life and why wow that's good book that, um such a tough one i'm gonna 
skate on this one a little bit. The one that immediately came to mind, strangely, was Gandhi. Um, I guess I found that very inspiring. Um, natural capitalism on the career front was uh, very inspiring. I think I read that in 99 or 2000. I think that really, that inspired me. Uh, that the, the idea, the basic idea that you could do well by doing good was very compelling to me. Um, having just built and sold a you know, for-profit business uh, I think that was very compelling. So natural capitalism was was definitely big for me. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can check that out. Do you know who it was by, Graham? Can you remember uh, who it was by? Natural capitalism is by, by Paul Hawken, and I think it's also by Amory. I think it's Paul Hawken and Amory Levins from okay. the Amory Levins from the Rocky Mountain Institute. Yeah, cool. Those are two great. If you want more uh, recent, just great ones, that I'd love people to read. Uh, certainly people who are not, or just needs a little push in the environmental area uh, is The Overstory by Richard Powers, I think. It's a fiction book, largely about trees, lot, lots of people in it as well and terrific stories, but um, that makes it sound boring. It's anything but, it's a tremendous, tremendous book. I think it won a Pritzker or something. It was, it so was, the, the Overstory is it Overstory. Yeah. Cool. Story. Okay. Yeah. I've not heard of it. I'll check it out. I'll put a link to that as well. Smashing. Okay. Uh, what's the best bit of business advice you've ever had and why? Best bit of business advice. Jeez. That's a tough one. I don't know. I don't know if anyone particular gave it to me, but I think uh, I th I think that business is largely about problem solving, and just looking at it that way. If you can solve a problem, that's what that's what that's how you'll be successful. So focus on solving a problem. Okay, cool. I like that. Uh, don't make a drama, just solve a problem. Cool. I like it a lot. Um, and the last question then, if you could have one mentor, uh, alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Yes, I'm so not good at these off the cuff. A mentor. <laughs> wow. Who would be a great mentor? Carl Sagan? I don't know. Uh, who would be a great mentor? Well, the Carbonauts is, it's a movement for sure. And that's the way I'm, we're really trying to look at it. So I would say I'd, I'd be really interested in, in talking to, to people who have built movements. So I don't know if that's like MLK or Gandhi or, Sure, they're like modest. I mean, I don't know, it could be a cult leader, it could be a religious leader. I don't know. Um, but I, I'd be, I'd be, I, I think I would at this particular juncture, I, I'm very interested in, in, in how you build a movement. And uh, so I'd want to talk to that person, whoever, whoever the best person there is. I don't know if you've come across it, and I haven't read it yet, but I've heard a lot about it, and it's on my buy list. 
is uh, a book called Blueprint for a Revolution. And it's written by a guy who organized uh, some of the political uprisings uh, sort of in, in Eastern Europe. And he had some, he uses a lot, it was, there was a lot of comedy and stuff like, it's really interesting, uh, but I haven't read it yet, but I'm definitely going to read it. So that might be an interesting one. Oh, great. I'll check it out. out. I'm wondering if I actually read it and I need to reread it. I think, I think I know who you're talking about. He's this lovely older guy. I think he's in the UK, in fact. And he's, yeah, basically he's the guy yeah, he's like he wanted to start a revolution. He's the guy. Well, this guy I think is from Eastern Europe, so it's oh. and he's I think it's someone different. But do check it. I okay. think that's what's called Blueprint for Revolution. I think you yeah. might enjoy it. So right. uh, he might be your guy because I think he does do stuff like that still, <laughs> for, but for <laughs> uh, for creative right. change. Anyway, there you go. So um, good. Well, I'm listen, sure he'll be listening. Just... I'm <laughs> sure he'll be listening. So just please contact me. I'm ready. I need your help. <laughs> cool. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Now, um, is there anything else that you think you need to say in order for us to call this show complete or the one thing that you want people to take away from this? Uh, well, I'd say focus. Listen, you want to point fingers, but also focus on your own life and trying to lower your own footprint. And you may be able to do that yourselves. Um, but if you can't and you need some help, uh, some accountability, some community, this is what we are doing. And it's not expensive. It doesn't take a lot of time. It's a lot of fun. And you literally get it done in a month from now. You could have a significantly lower footprint and be a, a lot more knowledgeable about all this stuff. So if I had to say one thing, yeah, join, join us. We are trying to grow this movement and it's, it's, it's really great. And so if you've been putting it off and putting it off and, or you sat down and tried to do the research and figure it out and realize how hard it is, the Carbonauts is here to make it easy for you. So hit thecarbonauts.com and join us in July. Cool. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. And good luck with everything, Graham. And uh, you. look after yourself. Take care. Thank you so much. One of my biggest takeaways from this interview was shifting to a yes and approach to climate change and taking personal responsibility for the things that I can influence. And I hope Graham has inspired you too to think about the different ways that you could make some small changes that will not only benefit you, but will cumulatively have a big impact on this beautiful planet we are privileged to live on. Do go and check out the Carbonauts and their fab training if you want to learn more about what you can do to live a more carbon-neutral lifestyle. I know I'm going to. Now, the other thing I hope you take away, as Graham highlighted, is that speaking is the best tool for building momentum for your message and becoming a thought leader. So if you know you want to inspire change and become a thought leader and you want some help creating that powerful signature talk that will attract and motivate your audience, then let's have a chat. Head over to saraharcher.co.uk and you can book in a free one-to-one -one call with me. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks again so much for joining me. I'll be back soon, and in the meantime, don't
don't you forget to grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. Getting to practice your speaking in front of an audience is a crucial part of testing your message and developing your skills and experience as a speaker. Yet opportunities to do this in the right environment can be hard to find. Add in the chance to get expert feedback and coaching on your content structure and delivery and the opportunities are even fewer. But that's what you'll get as a member of the Speaking Club Live. Each week, we'll be focusing on a different aspect of business speaking, from pitching to presenting to videos and lives. There'll be hot speak slots and you'll get the chance to practice sharing your message, your storytelling, your humour and all the different aspects of speaking in front of me and other members. Then you'll get feedback and coaching from me and your peers so that you're moving forward on your speaking journey with accountability and support. If you'd like to find out more about how you can become a member of the Speaking Club Live so that you can build your confidence, improve your delivery and become a better speaker, then go to saraharcher.co.uk slash club now.